And now my watch begins. Well, this is going to be a very uh, special, and by that I mean long, episode here today, as we're going to be taking a look into the basic strategies and tactics of the Night's Watch, including mainly, uh, well, exclusively starter box content, I should say, seeing as how that's what's being released at the end of the month at the time of this recording. So, we have a first new faction coming to A Song of Ice and Fire, joining the Starks, the Lannisters, and the Neutral Faction in our little foray here, and s just slightly before the Free Folk, who will be coming at a later date. Those of you who attended Gen Con, you've seen all this stuff before, and frankly, this stuff has made it out to the internet um, for quite some time, but we're going to be going over it today in semi-detail, I suppose, and uh, giving some general strategies and tactics, talking about the faction in general. So let's start. What are the Night Watch's central playstyle? Well, this is a very elite army. Most of your units are going to be very expensive, and they're going to have usually better stats and uh, abilities across the board to compensate for those high points. Their baseline unit is the Sworn Brothers, clocking at 6 points, versus Lannister Guardsmen at 5 points, and Stark Sworn Swords at 5 points in our two existing factions, and then Bolton Cutthroats at 5 points as well. So already your cheapest option for troops is a point higher. On average, your troops are going to be ranging around 8 cost each. So you're not going to have as many... Um, activations or the raw numbers that other factions do, but the Night's Watch makes up for that by having hyper elite units combined with a very big toolkit from their tactics cards. Now let's go ahead and take a look at the components that uh, make up the starter box for the Night's Watch. You're going to have two units of Sworn Brothers, one unit of Veterans of the Watch, and one unit of Ranger Trackers. Um, each of those combat units serves a very specific role in the army, uh, aside from the Sworn Brothers there, you're actually generic guys, so I'll start by lying on that. Um, and then you have your veterans and your ranger trackers. So looking at the Sworn Brothers, you're going to have a baseline movement of 5, a 4 plus defense, and a 6 plus morale. So you have average speed, your defensive stats are actually going to be above average for most other um, armies out there. A 4 plus is going to be average on the defense, the 6 plus morale is actually going to be a bit above average. So that's where you're at. Your standard attack is going to be a greatsword hitting on 3 plus with a 7-5-4 profile. So you're going to have a above average to hit ratio with your greatsword that has two special abilities with it. Critical blow rolls of 6 cause 2 hits and sundering. Defenders suffer minus 1 to their defense save rolls. So here, this is the most vanilla unit um, out of the starter box, but even then, this is an elite unit compared to most other armies. This is... Um, kicking on the same levels as like the Mountains Men and Lannisters. And Starks don't currently have a six-point option for melee, but you can kind of compare them to Berserkers um, in the fact they are rolling fewer dice, but they have a slightly better defense save, also Sundering and whatnot. But this is kind of your go-to vanilla unit for the Night's Watch. And even then, as I said, this is your baseline unit, but this is still considered an elite unit by most other army standards. You're going to get two units of these in the starter box. They clock in at six points apiece, giving you 12 points there. The next unit we're going to look at are going to be the Ranger Trackers. This, I believe, is probably going to be the single hardest unit for people to run out of the box, and I have a feeling that there's a lot of people that are going to just come out of the gate saying, man, these guys are terrible. And frankly, my advice there, learn to play better. <laughs> Sorry, just going to be blunt on that one there. Um, this is another one of those units I think people are just going to go and throw into the wrong situation and immediately get them killed and then say these guys are terrible. So let's look at these guys. They are a cavalry unit. 
they have uh, speed of six, defense of five, and a morale of six plus. So nothing to write home about on any of those except for the speed. Being cavalry, they're going to get their free maneuver. So that's actually nice. And actually the thing to remember, these guys are super fast. They're going to be able to get a free maneuver at six. They can march 12 after that. They can move six after that. They have two attacks. One is a recurve bow, uh, hitting on a three plus with a seven four profile. That's going to be your main source of damage here, and we'll talk about that in a second. They also have a melee attack with a short sword, six dice, three dice, four plus. Nothing to write home about there. Frankly, these guys don't really want to see melee ever. Uh, but they do have a unique order marked target. Start of a friendly turn. Very important to note here, this is a friendly turn. It is not their activation. It is not the start of the round. It is the start of any of your friendly turns. One enemy within line of sight and long range becomes vulnerable. So these guys at any key opportunity that you want can throw down a vulnerable token. Super valuable. That it alone right there is a really, really nice order to help the rest of your army. Um, it doesn't have to be anyone that they're specifically going after. It can be a unit that, you know, your sworn swords are engaged with, that one of your other elite units is engaged with. You know, throwing down a vulnerable token in general is just super useful. But really, it comes down to how you play these guys specifically. So their recurve bow is short range. That means you're going to have a 6-inch threat range on that, but remembering that you have a 2-inch shift before you make a ranged attack. So theoretically, this is actually 8 inches. Now factor in the fact that these guys are cavalry. They get a free 6-inch maneuver before they actually fire. So 8 plus 6, these guys have a 14-inch threat range. Um, also factoring in, these guys get their free maneuver. They can move up to a flank, shoot in the flank, and confer a minus one defense and a minus one to morale, say, uh, sorry, panic test rolls to the enemy. Frankly, if these guys are not shooting someone in the flank, you're positioning them badly. Okay. Now you combine the fact that you're giving a minus one to their defense rolls with vulnerable and seven dice hitting on threes. These guys can cause some major damage and are free from retaliation. If you're shooting something in the flank, hopefully they can't see you, which means they can't charge you, which means that they're going to have to come after you or devote resources to somehow dealing with you. They really can't crown zap you that well because you have a baseline six plus morale. Again, these guys don't want to see combat. If you do get in combat with an enemy, you know, you better have a good plan for it. But let's say you get them out of position and they get charged. Okay, not the end of the world. These guys, you know, take the time to retreat. If you retreat sideways, then the enemy, if they're unengaged and assuming they're going to be, are going to have a very difficult choice at that point. They're going to have to either turn to face you and potentially dis uh, displace their unit, or they're not going to turn and face you, and you're going to be then have exposure to their flanks, possibly their rear, to get your bonuses back on. Okay, More so than any other unit that I think has currently been released, period, across all the armies, positioning is super key with these guys. And I really, really, really want you to take that to heart. These guys are a short-ranged unit that needs to be hitting flanks, needs to be throwing out vulnerable. They need to not see direct combat. If you want to charge something in the flanks to assist another unit that's in combat or something, that's fine. But usually, these guys just want to sit in the flanks and just start shooting guys. Just because you can charge does not mean you should. So I really, <laughs> I really can't stress this enough. These guys have a bit of a higher learning curve than a lot of things out there. And if you're a player that's just going to run these guys up, get them in combat, and well, they're going to die, and you're going to sit there and get mad because your unit just died, and, you know, hopefully you will learn from that, okay? You know, no one's expecting, you know, to, you to come out and just be an expert at playing these guys immediately, but take a second to actually think about, okay, why did these guys die? You know, their stats are not that good. Well, okay, maybe I shouldn't be in melee. Sadly, I think a lot of players are just going to go, man, their stats aren't that good. These guys suck. Man, this game's broken. <laughs> 
I mean, come on. You know how it is, guys. You got to learn you learn the ropes. You can't just come into it being a, uh, a grandmaster. On the other hand, if you want something a little simpler, you also have the eight points Veterans of the Watch that come in the box as well. These guys here are much simpler to play in the fact that their entire role is just have really good stats and punish the enemy for attacking me. So they've got movement of 5, a defense of a 3+, and a morale of a 5+. Man, so just good defense and morale across the board. And then we look at their attack profile, dual weapons, 3+, 8, 7, 6. These guys maintain a constant threat throughout their entire existence. They have a great defense, they've got a good morale, and they have an order counterattack. When this unit is attacked with melee, after attack dice are rolled, for each blocked hit, the attacker suffers one automatic hit. Same thing that Jamie Lannister confers for his commander version. Um, and on that same note, please keep in mind, the attacker suffers an automatic hit, not an automatic wound. This is very different, okay? Same thing like when the game came out and everyone was, well, not everyone, but people were trying to treat Jamie as causing automatic wounds. <laughs> that must have been a scary thing for opponents. Same thing here. Remember, these are automatic hits. You get a defense save against those. Check your rulebook, people. Um, and so it's really nice, but it's not just, oh my god. What is oh my god about these guys is every one of their other stats, because these guys have fantastic to hit, fantastic attack dice that never really drops off, fantastic defense, fantastic morale, speed, average. Okay, sorry, that's their weak point. This is their only average speed. But you're paying for it. These guys are 8 points, and frankly... While they are expensive and have fantastic stats, that's really why you're taking them, is because of those stats. Order counterattack is nice, but it's not going to be a game changer on its own. You're taking these guys because they are just elite across the board, which makes them very easy to play and combo very, very well with a lot of the other Night's Watch cards. But again, you're paying for it. So these guys really, you can send them up into the most dangerous thing that your opponent has, and it's probably not going to be as dangerous as these guys. Um, what do these guys fear? They fear guys who are going to ignore their defense saves, so Great Axes or Pyromancers or some specific tactics cards. Their morale, even though it is a 5+, that does not make them immune to things. If you're fighting in a mini that has uh, Vicious that confers a minus 2, you're going to start getting whittled down. Um, crown zapping these guys is not really the best thing, but you know, you've got ways to get around them. It's just a matter of what route the opponent is going to take to try to take them down, and that's going to really depend on the army that you're playing against. Starks are going to have a much easier time crippling these guys' uh, defense saves with things like Sundering and Flank Attacks, and Lannisters are, of course, going to target your morale with things like Vicious and Panic Checks and things like that. But even through all of that, you're going to maintain a consistent source of damage throughout the entire lifespan of this unit, because, again, they hit on a 3+, and the worst they're ever going to be rolling is going to be six attack dice. And even when the opponent attacks them, they're causing some hits back. So this is your kind of big upgraded unit. The thing to note is that while these guys are, have really good stats and all and are uh, all, sorry, learning, forgetting how to talk, are forgetting, um, sorry, are all well-rounded. Okay, very well-rounded. They don't really do anything special specific to the enemy okay the sworn brothers have sundering and critical blow so they're really good at going after high uh defense targets the ranger trackers are really good at being mobile and persist and, and persisting as a constant threat the veterans are just a unit with really good stats so you know they don't really 
do anything specific. Now again, that is going to be mitigated by a lot of the tactics cards that are available to the Night's Watch, so they can get a very specific battlefield role once the game begins, but they don't naturally fall into anything, and that is a strength and a weakness in the fact that they are so flexible, but also in the fact that if you don't really put them in the best situation or you don't adapt, then yeah, you've got a bunch of good stats, but if they're not doing anything with those stats, then so what? And I really, really don't want to take a big 8-point unit like this and just park them on objective and have them sit there the entire game. Now, granted, that is something that is going to be uh, used with them a lot because we've got so many you know, times where objectives are nasty, and it is really hard to displace these guys. But frankly, it feels like a waste if you know your opponent is just giving you that objective off in the corner someplace and not focusing on them. You really want these guys to be up there in the combat. So... You know, it's a matter of just being able to adapt these guys to their specific situation. There is one more combat unit in the box, but we'll talk about him later. So right now, let's go ahead and jump to the tactics cards that are available to the Night's Watch. And really, this is going to explain the second aspect of them, and that is tactical flexibility. So the first point was that you're going to have a very hyper elite army full of expensive units. Okay. The next part of the army is going to be the fact that you are very, very... Uh, tactical and really open to strategy. So you have a big toolbox of problem-solving capabilities more so than any of the existing armies because you're not really focusing on anything specific like a, a attack pattern or strategy. The Lannisters are going to win the game through panic checks and morale manipulation. Starks are going to outmaneuver their opponent and just get some charges off and do a lot of extreme damage. The Night's Watch doesn't really have a focus like that. They are just adaptable to whatever the situation needs to. And that is seen in their tactics cards. So let's go ahead and go through them one at a time here and read them out and exactly what they do. The first one, the sword in the darkness. When a friendly unit makes a melee attack, the defender becomes vulnerable. And here's the fun part. Val. If this card targets a Night's Watch unit, you may attach this card to them. A unit may only have one vow at any time. Discard the previous vow and a new one is attached. While attached, they gain. While you control the combat zone, this unit's melee attacks roll plus two dice. Okay, so this is introducing us to the core mechanic that separates the Night's Watch from existing factions, and that are their vows. Vows are basically their generic tactics cards and some specific ones coming from commanders that allow you to take the tactic card when you, after you play it, it'll give you a very minor effect, but then you actually attach it to a friendly unit and they're going to gain a persistent effect based on controlling a specific zone of the tactics board. This allows you to customize your unit to have a specific battlefield role and give it some really cool and really powerful buffs. So the Sword in the Darkness is your main offensive vow. Uh, its first baseline effect is when you make an attack, the defender becomes vulnerable. I talked about with the ranger trackers how cool vulnerable is, and really I don't think anyone's going to ever argue that you know, throwing down vulnerable is a bad thing. The neat thing about this one, though, is while you control the combat zone, you're going to get plus two additional attack dice. This is going to allow you to boost the offensive potential of really any of your combat units. So the veterans are going to get thrown up to rolling uh, 10, uh, 10, 9, 8 dice. Your baseline sworn brothers are going to get boosted up to potentially rolling nine dice with critical blow and sundering it's just a fantastic you know offensive boost right here and frankly everyone wants to control the combat zone because hey free attacks are free attacks so you know this is a really powerful offensive card the other thing to note about the night's watch is that they do not have a preferred tactics zone 
Uh, unlike the Starks, which, for example, want to have the combat and maneuver zone, or the Lannisters that prefer the crown and the wealth zone, the Night's Watch make use of every zone in almost equal measure. So you're never going to be shoehorned into, man, I really have to claim the zone because all my cards trigger off of it. And you can help deny uh, the opponent because you know that they have preferred zones, whereas you do not. So, you know, it might be beneficial for you when you're playing against Lancers to take the crown zone because you know it's going to give you a benefit, but it's also going to shut down a lot of their effects. So that's something else to keep in mind when I'm talking about tactical flexibility. Moving on to the next card. We have the Watcher on the Wall. After a friendly unit is attacked, one other friendly unit may make a free maneuver or march action. Vow, I'm not going to read that every time, just again, it's a vow, it equips to a unit after you play it. While you control the maneuver zone, this unit gains plus one speed and may perform a free retreat action if it begins its activation engaged. Okay, so the first effect here, um, you get one of your units that's attacked, someone else gets to move into a better position. I love this card, by the way. This is probably my favorite of the generic uh, tactics cards available to the Night's Watch because I am such a big advocate of board positioning and flanks and rears and I really think that that's going to win you more games if you pay attention to it and as a key strategy and any faction can make use of that. So getting free maneuvers and free marches especially when you have some of these faster units are you know it's just it's a really big godsend. Like here if you play this card on some ranger trackers they're going to get a maneuver to the flank of an enemy and then if they activate their cavalry so you can actually get around to the rear and then shoot into them giving them that minus two uh, to their defense save and their morale test. But the second effect of this, while you control the maneuver zone, you gain plus one speed and may perform a free retreat action if it begins its activation engaged. So the plus one speed is super nice because you can just strap some rocket boots on some of your guys and just have them jet across the battlefield. Cavalry are a really good pick for this card right here because again, you're able to double dip with it because you're getting that free maneuver. So you're gonna have some speed seven trackers that are going to get a free speed seven maneuver and then, you know, whatever their other action is. Uh, this card is actually really nice. I don't want to talk about too many things that are not in the starter box, but this is actually a really cool card to throw down on the um, uh, Scorpion Weapon Crew, because those guys are all about getting into position and getting some super nasty uh, flank, and, uh, flank shots off, and this helps them get in position. Yes, the retreat portion of this card does not do them any good in the slightest, um, but... The rest of it is super nice. I'm not going to talk about that too much, but that's just, you know, okay, let's say that's a little spoiler for the future. I really like this unit having that card. Next card we have, the Shield of the Realms of Men. When a friendly combat unit is attacked, after attack dice are rolled. Automatically block D3 hits. Vow. While you control the wealth zone, each time this unit is attacked, automatically block D3 hits. Cool, huh? <laughs> so this one here is if you want to turn a unit into just an ultimate tank. And of course, the natural pick for this unit is going to be the Veterans of the Watch. But this is actually a fantastic vow to throw down on also those units that come out that do not have the best defense save. Uh, we have kind of spoiled the Ranger Hunters, which um, are a very hyper elite mobile unit, but don't have the best defense saves. This is a good one to throw on them because you don't have to worry about their defense if you're just automatically blocking hits. And, you know, again, just throwing this down to be able to block D3 hits when you're attacked is fine. And then the ongoing effect is just really nice as well. So this is another one that, while it does have some obvious applications with throwing it down on units that are already hard to kill, so you're just kind of doubling down on that, consider throwing this one down on some of your squishier units because they might benefit more from being able to just automatically block those hits versus just turning a unit that's already good at defense into even better at defense. So, you know you're doubling down on something that you might not need. So when you're playing your vows, 
think about what your unit's natural weaknesses are and how you can help mitigate those via the use of your vows. The next one we have is the fire that burns against the cold. When an enemy expends a condition token on a friendly unit, cancel the effect of that token. Vow. When this unit activates, you may place one condition token on an enemy within long range. If you do, discard this vow unless you control crown. This is one of those cancel and prevention effects right here. No one likes having condition tokens on your units. No one really likes being vulnerable. No one likes being weakened. And a bunch of people don't really like being panicked either, you know? So this helps you get rid of that and can also kind of be one of those little gotcha moments for the opponent where they thought they were really going to cause a lot of nasty effects for you, but now all of a sudden it's gone. Okay. This one here is actually really beneficial if you're playing against uh, neutral forces, specifically House Bolton, because they really like to expend panic tokens to cause a bunch of nasty stuff to happen to you, and this is going to give you a measure of safety against things like that. The second effect of this, the vow keyword, is also really nice because you can continuously throw down condition tokens, assuming you control the crown. Now, you're not always going to control the crown, but even if you don't, using this as a one-time thing to throw down a condition token can really make or break some combats. If you throw this down into, like, for example, a ranger tracker unit, when they activate, you could have potentially thrown down two vulnerable tokens that same turn, one from their order marked target, and then one from the fire that burns against the cold. So... You know, those are two nice little combos there. Or you could potentially throw down a vulnerable token and a panic token, or a vulnerable token and a weakened token. You know, hey, whatever combination you want. The point being is that this is going to uh, give you the tactical flexibility from the condition token standpoint of things to help you bypass any issues you might have. So you're facing an opponent that has a really good, you know, defense save. Okay, make them vulnerable. You want to target their morale to help you know, get some extra damage in that way, or you're playing Feast for Crows game mode or whatever, make them panicked. Or you think they're going to charge you, and you really just don't want to, you know, take that damage, throw down some weakened. I mean, come on, guys. It's general strategies here, but this is giving you the tactical flexibility to throw down whatever condition you need at whatever given time you need. Next one, the horn that wakes the sleepers. Start of a friendly turn, target one unit, and draw two tactics cards. Okay, real simple effect there. Everyone likes having more tactics cards. Everyone likes having more options. Vow. At any time, while you control the tactic zone, you may discard this vow to attach one vow tactic card from your hand or discard pile to this unit. So a unit has died, or you've had to cycle through, or you just didn't want to replace a previous vow of a card, this one allows you to cycle your discard pile and equip things to your combat units. Now, you can pick one from your hand, that, I really feel, is if you have the perfect one in your hand, feel free to do that. But otherwise, I would usually like to hang on to that card to get the effect, because the triggers on a lot of your cards are not that hard to get off. And getting that first effect before the equip um, vow effect happens is usually going to be really nice. So 9 out of 10 times, you're going to use this to cycle a card from your discard pile back to your hand. But, you know, don't, you know, if the situation warrants, okay, throw one from your hand on there and, you know, get that effect on there. Really, this is just a nice card because it helps cycle through your deck. Something else that you should be apparent uh, should be apparent so far is that more so than the existing factions, the Night's Watch really do heavily make use of their tactics deck. Not to say like the Starks and the Lannisters don't, but the Night's Watch really have an ingrained kind of um, relationship with their deck uh, because that is so much of their tactical flexibility. Another thing that I probably should have mentioned at the forefront of this, but I didn't, is that something else to note is that your vows specifically target Night's Watch units. What this does is that it kind of makes your army less inclined to run a lot of the neutral forces, 
because so many of your cards are not going to get their full benefit via the vow effect by putting them on that unit. Now, okay, you still, you know, feel free to run some Bolton Cutthroats for your cheap five-point options, and, you know, yeah, if you want to throw some Flademen in there, feel free. But you are losing out from those vow effects. So most of the time, I really feel that there's probably a better Night's Watch option for you to take versus, you know, one of the others. Now, of course, there can be some exceptions. You've got five points left over. Go feel free to throw in a unit of Bolton Cutthroats. You really like cavalry list, hell, feel free to you know run a bunch of trackers with some flayed men. That actually sounds really nasty. But just note that you are limiting yourself in some applications. Now, something you can view that as is that the secondary vow effect is kind of just a benefit that you're getting versus you know the first effect. So you know yeah, you're not getting your extras. But I'm all about efficiency, so that's just something else to mention. Probably should mention that at the start, but hey, there you go. All right, now we're going to start moving into some cards here that are not Vow specific. And this is probably going to be the most talked about card in their entire generic tactics arsenal, and that is Take the Black. When an enemy combat unit is destroyed, choose one. Restore up to D3 plus one wounds to a friendly Night's Watch infantry unit within short range of that enemy. Or take one infantry attachment from that enemy and attach it to a Night's Watch infantry unit within short range, ignoring the usual attachment restrictions. And I know so many of you just went like, oh my god, I can just take their commander, I can take the mountain. Yeah, that's right. You can do all of that cool stuff. Is that the best option, though? Okay, so here's the thing about this card. It's really thematic, and it's really cool. And yeah, taking like you know an enemy commander and a special character or whatnot and putting it in your unit... Man, that sounds really cool. Like, I made, you know, Great John Umber take the black. I made Roos Bolton, Ramsey Bolton take the black. And now I've got them. Please don't ignore that first effect of restoring D3 plus one wounds. Because I, if we want to get down to, like, you know, bluntness, that is going to probably be more effective in the long-term strategy of winning the game than taking an infantry attachment. First off, we have to look at the fact that with this card, you had to destroy the enemy combat unit. All right? So that means that if the unit you destroyed, they had to have had an attachment in there that was really worth taking at the time versus just healing yourself two to four wounds. So that's a little bit of a situational setup here. I know people like to just assume that the enemy is going to throw out their best hero right into the center of the battlefield and let you kill them, but I promise you they're probably not going to do that. So it's a little situational whether you're going to get the attachment. Secondly, it's a little situational whether that attachment is going to be super useful for you at that time. And third, if your unit is already really whittled down and about to die, taking a cool attachment is not going to really help you if they get killed immediately. Healing is kind of a general, yeah, this is always going to be useful type thing. Uh, and healing between two and four is, you know, not insignificant. That's up to an entire rank of guys just brought back. Frankly, when I look at like something like Veterans of the Watch, yes, giving them a cool attachment is nice, but restoring four wounds to a unit that has a three-plus defense and counterattack, usually to me that is going to feel a little bit better. So, you know, I'm not going to be the you know the party pooper on this one here and say like, you know, oh, just guys, calm down. But, you know, I like to keep things here tactical and speaking from a you know a, a general standpoint of I'm playing this semi-competitively. And, you know, I want to make the best tactical and strategic plays at any time. So don't just, you know, get kind of, you know, um, excitable about being able to take an attachment. 
really sit there and think when you play this card, is this the best option at this time? What am I what am I going to get in the long-term benefit here? Now there's a lot of times where yes, that attachment is going to be a big benefit to your army. Like you steal a mage Mormont or you know a, a blackfish or something like that. That can be a big swing in the power of that unit. But really stop and consider is that attachment going to, you know, benefit me as much as that healing is. So just keep that in mind, guys. The last one we have is, and now his watch is ended. When a friendly combat unit is destroyed, you may return one attachment vow card from that unit to your hand and then remove one activation token from a friendly unit or remove one friendly NCU from the tactics board, meaning they can be activated again this round. So most factions have a card that is going to affect when a friendly unit is destroyed in some capacity and give you some benefit for it. Um, Starks have uh, the North Rimbers, Lannister have a Lannister pays his debts, Night's Watch have, and now his watch is ended. This kind of plays in the fact that your units are usually very expensive, so your blows are going to be felt kind of a lot more than some other um, armies. You're going to be able to take a attached Vow card from them and return to your hand. So that means you're going to get a Tactics card back from your hand, which is great. And the secondary effect, you're going to be able to remove one activation token from a friendly unit, or remove a friendly NCU from the tactics board. Now, depending on what zone of the tactics board you control, that can be a huge swing. You know, if you control the, uh, the combat zone early in the round, and then you remove your guy from the combat zone, you put him back, you're going to get another free attack. Now, granted, that's kind of the same as removing an activation token from a guy, and usually most of the time that's going to be the better option, but sometimes you're not going to have that. You know, say you need some extra healing, so you pull an NCU off of the wealth zone, and you put them right back on there to heal. Say you want some extra tactics cards, you know, pull them off, put them back on, get those extra condition tokens, get some extra tactics cards on there. You know, this is such a wide variety of options with this card that's really hard to go into every express situation. And it's really going to depend on the current uh, board state that what is going to be the best benefit for you. I really feel that most of the time removing the activation token is going to be the better play. But say you lose a unit early in the round and you've already activated a couple of units that don't really need to activate again. Um... You know, that can be a problem. Now, luckily, this card does give you the tactical flexibility to usually give you a good target, you know, to remove from the tactics board or remove an activation token. But otherwise, you're still going to get a vow card back from your hand, which means you're still going to get your tactics card and be able to play it down to get whatever effects are. You know, you take back a uh, watcher on the wall, you can potentially get another free maneuver. Um, you know, throwing down a vulnerable token of sword in the darkness. It's just a very versatile card, so... You know, yeah, you've got to lose a guy, but you make the best of a bad situation. So those are the generic tactics cards available to the Night's Watch. Next thing we are going to look at, having looked at them, is we are going to look at the attachment cards that come in the uh, starter box. Now, I am not going to talk about the commanders and their specific play styles here, because that is just each one of those guys is going to get their own highlight. Okay, so I just very quickly want to go over the attachments, including the commanders, and give some brief oversights, but I'm not going to get into specific commander tactics here because, again, we're going to talk about that later. But let's go ahead and get this started. The first one we have is Jor Mormont, the 997th Lord Commander, and this is his commander version. He has the ability Oath of the Black. When this unit activates, it may discard an attached Vow Tactics card and replace it with a different Vow Tactics card from your discard pile. 
So Jor in general has a play style that is all about tactics card and specifically Vow manipulation. And so this is playing into his strategy here of just being able to constantly adapt a unit to what they need to do on the battlefield. Okay, so this is helping you cycle from your discard pile, getting the exact thing you need for any given moment to equip to the unit. All right, he's good. This is your effect for having his commander. As I said, we'll give him more of a deep dive later. The other commander you have available is Jon Snow, the 998th Lord Commander. He has uh, two abilities. One is his order Indomitable. When this unit passes a morale test, this unit may restore up to D3 wounds. This is going to be carry into his primary playstyle of having a bunch of restorative and healing effects. John is kind of the attrition guy here. He is going to make it so you can just constantly heal your units back up and keep them from you know dying when they're on the verge of being completely removed. And that's his playstyle. The second ability he has is Bond Ghost. Yeah, he comes with his direwolf ghost, um, which is the other combat unit that I was going to talk about earlier. We'll talk about that after this. Bond Ghost. When this unit activates, Ghost may activate before or after this unit takes its action. So the thing about John is um, he is your healing guy. He comes with Ghost, who is going to give you some additional options as far as how things are going to play out. Because, okay, let's just look at Ghost. Ghost has direwolf stats. If you looked at any of the other direwolves, you've seen everything that Ghost does. He does have a unique ability on his attack, though, called Silent Predator. Silent Predator states that when this attack is selected, enemies may not play tactics cards for the rest of the turn, and enemies do not get defense saves against the attack. So you have an attack that hits on two dice, on two plus, that doesn't allow defense saves. Fantastic for going after some nasty solo units, such as the Mountain That Rides, or, you know, Flayed Men, although Flayed Men will just turn around and kill this thing dead, but hey, two wounds is two wounds. But really the big thing for him is uh, when the attack is used, enemies may not play tactics cards for the rest of the turn. That includes John's unit's activation. So you activate Ghost first, you're going to shut down the enemy from being able to play tactics cards, and then John's unit is going to go, and also getting that same effect of not being able to be retaliated against. So that's your little one-two combo there that carries across John, regardless if you're running his commander or his attachment version. Speaking of John's attachment version, for three points you can take Lord Snow, uh, who has Bond Ghost, but also gains Boldness and Courage. When the unit makes a melee attack, it is always treated as having one additional rank. If it already has full ranks, it rolls plus two attack dice. You've seen this ability um, previously on Jamie Lannister, the young lion. And here you're paying a slightly elevated cost because you're also getting a dire wolf with John as well. Boldness and Courage is still a fantastic ability, though, to keep your units topped off and just attacking at their maximum capabilities. But really, this is a nice one for when you already have... Um, your unit at max ranks to get plus two additional attack dice. So you combine this with like a card such as the Sword in the Darkness, which is going to confer an additional plus two attack dice, you can potentially be getting plus four here, which means that you can have some Veterans of the Watch throwing down 12 attack dice. You can have Sworn Brothers throwing down 11 attack dice with Sundering and Critical Blow. Super nasty right there. And you're getting the benefits of having Ghost, and you know, you're getting the benefits of Boldness and Courage, so you're only ever going to be you know, at so few attack dice. The next one we have is actually the last generic, uh, sorry, last combat attachment that is in the box. Dior has another version, but he's an NCU, and we'll get to talking about that in just a bit. The next one that we have is the generic Watch Captain, who is a two-point attachment and has two abilities. First one, oh, let's start with the, uh, the most important one, Unbreakable Vows. This unit may have two attached vows. 
So as we mentioned when we were talking about the vows previously, you have one. When you get one, it replaces the previous one. Not so when you have a watch captain there, because they could have two at any given point. And this is really allows a unit to just gain extra tactical flexibility and become a just a nasty monster of a unit. Now, the thing about the vows is that having multiples attached is really nice for the power spike that it can give a unit, but that also requires you to claim multiple zones of the tactics board to really maximize that effect. And frankly, you know, you're going to be running on average two NCUs, so that means you're kind of setting up this exact specific situation for that unit to be at maximum capacity uh, outside of a very specific combo, which we'll actually get to. What this does more than anything else is I don't want you to look at this guy and go, oh, you know, he can just increase the power of a unit. This guy actually increases the tactical flexibility of the unit, okay? And that's, again, we're getting back to overarching themes here. So with the Watch Captain, you'll have two vows equipped. Usually those vows are going to be uh, different effects. Um, in fact, they need to be different effects because, remember, simultaneous, sorry, same named effects you can't stack. So, you know, you're kind of wasting if you do that. But say you have the Sword of the Darkness and the Horn that wakes the Sleepers on here, for example. So those require you to control the combat and the maneuver zones of the Tactics Board to gain their effects. What this allows you to do is that if you control one of those zones, you're going to be at least trigger one of your Vow effects here. Really, with this guy, I think that people read him and they put a big focus on, if I control all of these zones, I'm going to gain this big cluster of effects. When really you should be reading this as, this guy allows me to claim a zone that I might need for another situation, but still gain an effect, okay? And yeah, you're paying some points for that, but again, you're increasing the tactical flexibility of your unit. And this guy has one other effect too, which is kind of pertinent. And now my watch begins. At the start of round one, reveal the top three cards of your tactics deck. You may select one vow card from amongst them and attach it to this unit. Return the rest of your tactics uh, to the rest of your tactics deck and then shuffle. So this guy allows you to statistically start with a equipped vow. There is a chance that you could reveal three cards and none of them are vows, but frankly, that's pretty low. Um, so usually you're going to reveal at least something that you can put on that unit. And all the cards have really good benefits as we've gone over. There's none of them that are, you know, bad in any way. So this is just going to allow you to start the game with some minor buff on the unit, whether it's going to be giving them plus one speed from watching the wall, uh, letting them throw down a condition token almost immediately, letting you draw extra tactics cards. You know, there's really just, uh, there's few negatives here. And the only slight negative is that technically you're getting the card and not being able to really play it because you're just immediately equipping them. And yeah, that preliminary effect might have been nice, but frankly, since this is happening at the start of the game, odds are if that card was going to be in your hand, then it might have been dead to begin with. And you know, no one really likes holding on to dead tactics cards. You really want to kind of cycle through those to find something useful, you know, as often as you can. A lot of people kind of try to hold on to tactics cards and you know for the best prime situation when really if it's not working for you pitch it and draw something else this kind of gets around that fact by you know you might have had a card come up that you would would have drawn that wouldn't have benefited you that early in the game but now you can at least just take it and throw it down onto you know a guy and get it equipped so that's really my big mental takeaway with this guy is that you really need to look at him as more opening up flexibility options than just increasing raw power. If you're playing this guy because you want to double down on vow effects and think that you're going to get both those effects 
often and get disappointed when you don't. That's not really, I think, how you should be playing this guy. Now again, there's some exceptions. We're going to get to that very shortly, but that's something to keep in mind here. I feel the Watch Captain is really good just to throw down on a unit of Sworn Brothers because they do have that, you know, again, kind of tactical flexibility and the fact that they're already really nasty with Critical Blow and Sundering, and all those effects really benefit them. Sticking him in a unit of Veterans of the Watch is getting to be a little bit of a higher price point than I really want to see. So that's why I kind of err to the side of not doing that. But uh, he is he is a solid addition there. Um, again, breaking the thing I said before about talking about un non-starter box unit. Ranger Hunters, I really feel, are one of the best units that benefit from him. Because they are just... Their stats are really nice, too. And what they do on the battlefield. They're your, probably your most tactically flexible unit. And increasing that flexibility, I think, is just really elevates them up. And they're also, well, they're about the same cost as veterans, but veterans to me have a very specific purpose um, in what I'm going to be using them with when we start talking about more advanced lists. Ranger hunters have a good attack uh, at melee and ranged, and they're mobile, so really there's more vows that are going to benefit those three key areas, and I feel doubling down on those of the Watch Captain is a really good thing. So I'm not going to talk about that anymore because, again, breaking my rule about talking non-starter box stuff in here. Alright, so let's discuss the non-combat characters available in the Night's Watch starter box. You're going to have two that just come baseline, and then you're going to have your third one, which is Jorah Mormont's um, non-commander version. And let's actually start with him. So you have Jorah Mormont, the old bear, four points, with the duty, and he has an influence effect. While influencing unit, you count as controlling all tactic zones for any vow effects on that unit. I really, really like Jor uh, in the proper list. I don't feel he's one that you can just throw down into any list and just have him work. But if you build a list around um, specifically vows and the proper units, he is just an invaluable asset. And he actually partners well with the Watch Captain, as I was just talking about previously. You know everything I said about the Watch Captain and not being able to just snowball the unit by always controlling the same tactic zone? That kind of goes out the window when you have a guy that says, hey, you control all zones of the tactics board. So if you want to run a list with, you know, some Sworn Brothers and Watch Captains and Jor, that's a really fun list to play because you can make some seriously scary units because you're just going to control everything with Jor. Jor is one of those things that I really feel that when people play and actually see the impact he has, that's when you're going to... Whoops, sorry about that, guys. That's when you're really going to see um, his main uses. I feel that you have to build a list that, you know, you can't just throw him into a list and expect him to, you know, really work all that well. You have to have conscious decisions about why you're including Jorah Mormont in your list and what your units hope to achieve. And if you really want to go of a just a tactically super flexible list, you know, again, Ranger Hunters with Watch Captains or Sworn Brothers with a bunch of Watch Captains, you know, then Jor can really help you out there. And frankly, if you're playing against another army that, like, say, for example, is trying to actively block your guys on the uh, tactics board, which is a fairly smart play, they can look and see what attachments, or sorry, what vows you have attached and counterplay you there, Jor shuts that strategy down as well. So he is useful, say, in the situation where if you're playing against a opponent that, I don't know, was running three NCUs, um, which is, you know, then is going to make the tactics board a bit of a race, then he can help mitigate that fact if you're only running two, for example. 
because you can just take whatever you know you want. If you want technically supreme flexibility, you could run Jor and uh, Peter Baelish Littlefinger to really just take whatever zones you need at any given time and just not worry about it. So that's something about Jor. I really like him, but I feel that he does have a slightly higher learning curve compared to our other two options, which include Bowen Marsh, the first Stuart. Nice little plump, you know, face there. Little bit of chunky guy. Counts and measures. When Bowen claims a zone on the tactics board, you may look at the top two cards of your tactics deck. Place one of those cards in your hand and the other on the bottom of your tactics deck. So as I mentioned previously, the Night's Watch have a very big relationship with their Val cards from their tactics deck. So anything that's going to allow me to draw extra cards and gain access to those is going to be invaluable. Stack the fact that Bowen is a three-point NCU, and he is a really solid option to take. Now, there is a slight negative to him in the fact that when you are looking at those top two cards, they might both be really, really good, and you're going to send one of those to the bottom of your tactics deck. That is something to remember, though, is because that means that when you do that, you know what you're sending down there, at least, so you're probably not going to see it for the rest of the game. Or at least if you do, it's going to be very late in the game. So that's something you really need to plan around as well. Otherwise, he's just a really solid option. You know, drawing extra tactics cards is always nice. And with the Night's Watch, it is one of those more important things to be able to do. Uh, as more NCUs become available, yes, there's going to be more tactical and specific options as to what I would want to take. But just coming out of the starter box, he's a really solid option because he's very easy to play. You know, his effect doesn't require a lot of thought. And it's just a passive effect that you're always going to get. Last one NCU to look at is Aemon, Maester of Castle Black. His effect is Maester's Healing. When Aemon claims a zone on the tactics board, you may restore up to one wound to a friendly infantry unit, plus one additional wound per destroyed rank in that unit. Of all the NCUs that are going to be in the watch, I can tell you right now that Aemon is probably going to be the one that's going to frustrate the most opponents and teach them the most valuable lesson if they're willing to learn it. And I have a feeling, unfortunately, a lot of people are going to have a hard time learning this lesson. And that is, for the love of God, do not leave Night's Watch guys partially uh, alive when they are running Aemon. Because what's going to happen is he is going to claim the Wealth Zone and restore three wounds to that unit. And then an additional three wounds because of his ability. And all of a sudden your unit that was nearly, that was nearly dead is going to get six models back. Okay? This is a situation that really should not be happening that often. Because, again, it requires you to be down to your last rank and then to take the well zone. But if it happens, I really don't have a problem just blaming the opponent for this, okay? This is something that is really in control of a lot of opponents um, when it happens. There, Now, I'm not going to just say, like, oh, my God, you just, you're a terrible player. There are situations where you're going to attack a unit, think that you're going to wipe it out, and you're not. I mean, you know, it's a calculated risk. You might just reduce them down to you know, one to three models left, and yes, that really sucks, because you're like, crap, they're about to go, and Aemon's going to get healed, and he's just going to heal them right back up. And it's super frustrating. It can be. Something to note, though, is that if you are going to plan to wipe out a Night's Watch unit, and you see that your opponent is running Aemon, do yourself a favor and just early in the round, claim that wealth zone. Okay? Even if you don't really need the healing, it's not so much about taking it uh, sorry about healing your own guys. It's more so about taking that effect away from your opponent. Because healing six guys back up is a big swing. That's half a unit. And it can be super frustrating, especially if something like, you know, Veterans of the Watch, where they're so hard to take down initially, and now all of a sudden all that work you did, all those resources you devoted, they just healed it all right back. Okay? So I really feel that Aemon 
is going to be one of those like more talked about pieces that is going to be frustrating for a lot of people but he's going to force you to learn how to do counterplay and that's something that i feel a lot of players should really learn and adapt to and have a strong focus on okay it's not always about just making your plan work sometimes you do need to take time to make sure the enemy's plan is not going to work and aemon is one of these pieces that if you see him in an opponent's army it should dictate you to do some counter strategies and some counter plays and if you just let him do what he's going to do there's a big strong chance that you're going to suffer for it and it's something that you really could have prevented had you just you know thought about a little bit more of the long game okay so this is a good lesson here just in general but especially i think that aemon is going to really force people to learn or they're going to get hyper frustrated from you know sometimes you need to take some time to just make sure the enemies does not have all the options available to them that they could take some time to counter and set up a trap so you can make sure that things work out in your favor especially against playing the night's watch so we've looked over all of the uh units that they have available we've looked over all the combat units the tactics cards uh, that are not commander specific we've looked over their ncus so let's get down to some closing thoughts on the faction here and i think that's going to come back to full circle talking about the tactical flexibility that they have and really how you should counterplay that okay as we've gone over everything here we've seen the big picture of this faction you have a bunch of hyper elite guys that are going to mitigate that weakness by the use of really smart uh, tactical plays and having a big toolbox of effects okay the weakness of the night's watch is that they do have limited resources and they really have to know how to devote those resources to the proper um how to properly use all the resources given to them at any given time because if they don't they're going to suffer for it when you're playing against the night's watch it's a very good faction to learn some key elements of the game that you're not going to learn anywhere else because most other armies when they come into combat you know what they're going to do i know when i play against the starks they're going to have a bunch of raw aggression and they're going to be really fast I know when I play against the Lannisters, they're going to come at me with panic checks. They're going to start disrupting my strategies and my tactics via just their own stuff. When I play against the Night's Watch, though, I have to be able to go, these guys here can adapt to most anything I throw out. So I need to be one step ahead of their one step ahead. Really, more so than a Stark or Lannister list, you're going to need to look at what tools did this night's watch person bring to the table are they playing Jon snow who has a focus on healing are they comboing that with maester aemon are they really just going cranking up that healing factor to 11. okay if they are how am i going to bypass that are they playing jor mormont are they playing a vow cycling you know deck uh, sorry a vow cycling um tactics card deck with Jor and a bunch of elite units such as Veterans of the Watch and Watch Captains to really make each of those a big threat. Okay, if so, what am I going to do to bypass that? Because the Night's Watch, they're going to have a general strategy based on the units they bring and the tactics cards that the commander is going to throw on the table. But you know that they're going to be able to adapt. So you're going to be able to need to adapt even one step further to bypass whatever it is they're going to try to focus on to win the game and sometimes you're going to face a night's watch army that's not going to have a specific focus they're going to run just kind of their general toolbox and that means that the micro situations are going to start mattering all the more 
And that's going to be, you know, a really tight game, I'll say, and a really good learning experience. I really do feel that if you want to learn how to play micro tactics, and by that I mean, okay, this is a very specific situation that I'm finding myself in. What is the optimal play? What is the optimal strategy that I can use to win this situation or come out on top? I really feel that playing against the Night's Watch is going to help you learn that as a player. Night's Watch in general are so adaptive and you know so toolboxy that they're going to be should be playing to most of the strengths of whatever game mode you're playing at. You need to factor that into play as well as you know what they're bringing to the table as the best way to beat them. So that's going to be my biggest you know takeaway coming back you know circle and circle and circle is if you're playing as the Night's Watch you're going to have the tactical flexibility to really adapt to any situation. That's going to be your single biggest strength. You can build a specific list that is going to focus on an area above others. You can focus on your know, mobility list. You can make a, uh, a tanky list with Veterans of the Watch. You can make a healing list with John and Eamon. But never forget that at your core, you are a tactically flexible army that can deal with most any situation. So don't shoehorn yourself into a certain play style just because that is where you have put a lot of your invested strategy and tactics. Remember that you can always default back to being adaptive. If you're playing against the watch, understand that they can react to most any situation, so you need to be able to do that as well. You're going to have the ability to focus on an area of the game and probably be better at them than that. If you're Starks, you're going to be faster than them. You're going to hit harder on the charges because you have more options than they do in those specific areas. If you're playing Lannisters, you know that you're going to have more mitigation than they will. You know that you're going to have much more panic-inducing effects and morale-hitting effects. So you need to play to your strengths. Because if you try to, if you let the Night's Watch, uh, you know, play to their strengths, which are usually going to be their flexibility, aka their ability to counter whatever you're doing, then you're playing their game. You need to remember that they can, they're jack of all trades. They're going to be decent at most everything they try to do, but they're not going to be great at it. Meanwhile, the army you're playing, you're usually going to be really good at one specific aspect because that's why you're playing that army. So you need to play to your strengths and not fall subject to playing to the Night's Watch strengths. So that's going to be like, you know, the balance that yin and yang that you're going to have to find when you're playing against them. And that's why I feel that. You know, properly learning how to play a Night's Watch army can be a really rewarding experience. But also playing against them can also help you grow as a player and be a really rewarding experience when you overcome them and you figure out, you know, where's that chink in that armor? Where's that little, you know, thing that I can do that's going to cause his strategy to crumble to the ground? All right, guys, that has been my overview of the Night's Watch starter. We will go over some deep dives on the specific combat units available to them in the upcoming time uh, when the starter box actually becomes officially released, which again at the time of this recording is going to be the end of this month. And we will get into some commander deep dives further along as well. Until then, hope you've enjoyed this and join me next time. We'll go over something entirely different. Take care.